everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. In this episode, our lead pastor, Nick Gibson, and our music and worship arts director, Nicole Kyle, are going to talk about the end times. We received a few questions on this topic from the Ask Me Anything after the service on August 2nd, and we saved them for the podcast since we have a little more time here to answer these questions in depth. As always, if you have any questions from listening to this episode, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. We'd love to have you join us for future AMA times on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. I'm Nicole Kyle. I'm here with Nick Gibson. Hello. And we both work at High Point Church, and we are here for the um, AMA podcast. We were um, from Sunday, August 2nd. We had a handful of questions that we did in the service, and now the rest of these questions we're going to do in this podcast. And these ones in particular are mostly related to end times. And the other Um. fun thing about this podcast is that we have a very hard time limit on this. So end times in a short period of time is what we are um, embarking on right now. End times before the end time. Yeah, exactly. So let's just jump right in. Here's the first question, Nick. What is your view of the rapture? So um, the rapture is this idea. It comes from a word that means to be caught up, which is actually in the passage for today. It's in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. So it says this, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's the new American standard. So the idea is that at the return of Christ, at some point during those end moments, those who are still alive and who believe are going to be caught up to be with Christ. It says literally in the clouds or in the heavens. And so, um, yeah, in the air is technically with the word in Greek. And so that being caught up has been termed the rapture and it's part of most end times theologies. Um, though different theologies think it happens at different moments, depending on the timeline that they create. So my view of the rapture is that based on first Thessalonians four seventeen, there's going to be something like a rapture. Like the, those who are alive when Christ returns will be caught up to be with him in the air. I do not take a very dogmatic position on like when that happens or in relationship to what in relationship to the millennial millennium or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to be, if I have if you, if you want me just to like tell you my thing and you know anything about eschatology, generally speaking, I tend to be um, a post tribulation rapture person. I don't think seem mm-hmm. to think there's good evidence that the rapture happens before the tribulation. Mm-hmm. If all that is as literal as it seems. So that's my view, but I, we high point church doesn't like have a position on that. Mm-hmm. And if you look at our doc- if you look at our doctrinal statement, our doctrinal statement is premillennial, meaning we believe that Jesus will return, and then He will rule on the earth for a period of time that is referred to as a millennium, and then there will be final judgment after that, and that seems to be the case, like the right way to interpret that. Mm-hmm. But the rap there's different views. There's like three or four different views on the rapture about exactly when that could happen. Mm-hmm. And um, this is just a quick follow up question. I want to add: Is there? You said you don't really take a very dogmatic view on this particular doctrinal issue. Can you explain a little bit of why? Because I, I think it'd be probably helpful for people just to hear through the way you think through what sorts of issues you're going to take a really strong position on, and others that you're going to ha- hold more loosely. 
Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is just its clarity in Scripture, which is also relative to the kind of literature in Scripture it's in. So the millennium is discussed in Revelation chapter 20, and Revelation is what's called apocalyptic literature. That is, it's written... It's written in a like kind of like highly imagery focused sort of way so that you end up interpreting the literal details relative to how you are interpreting the code of the imagery, which is really easy to screw up. Yeah. Right? So for example, when I was younger, so there are huge locusts with the faces of men at one point in Revelation, right? Well, what, what is that? Are they going to be literally huge locusts yeah. <laughs> with like the heads of people on them? And so some people interpreted those to be during the time of the Soviet Union to be Russian helicopters, right? Because a helicopter looked kind of like a locust, right? A really big locust. Uh-huh. But then if but then the front cockpits of helicopters tend to be clear glass. So you could see the faces of people, right? Uh-huh. So if the Apostle John saw a helicopter, what would he what would he say it looked like, right? I think it was a giant locust. A giant locust with a human head, right? So yeah. but yet now the USSR is defunct and like maybe they're Chinese helicopters or American helicopters. I mean, who knows, right? So um because because apocalyptic literature has to be interpreted with all these assumptions built in, it really is really hard to be exactly sure. Actually, next week, the next section in First Thessalonians, we'll talk about times and dates mm-hmm. and what we should think about them. And basically, Paul just says, you don't need to know. You'll already be able to like discern the times. And by responding to the times as you should, you will be responding as you should in that moment. Mm-hmm. Right? So you don't have to literally know when the rapture is. If you understand how different kinds of times within human society's function and you're living faithfully in it, you will be prepared for whatever happens. Mm-hmm. rather than that you know exactly when it's going to happen. Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah. So an, a sense of preparedness rather than a sense of complete assurance that you're in that moment right now. Right. Yeah. That's helpful. I I, I have follow-up questions I want to ask, but we're trying to stick to time. So maybe if there's time at the end when we get through the other questions, I can. Cause we've only got five minutes, though. I mean, oh, anyway, go right. ahead. Do whatever you want. Okay. You're well, the host. I'll ask it. Because here's part of it. Like there have, like you alluded to, are these Russian helicopters the signs of the end times? I mean, there have all there have consistently been people who are convinced that we're in that moment now. And so for us as Christians, what do you <clears throat> I guess, <clears throat> well, maybe this really isn't that complicated of a question. Like, how should we interact with other Christians who think that it is imperative for us to believe that that's where we are right now and that that should change the way that we're interacting with other people? As long as that interaction is a heightened sense of a desire to live in godliness and to live out the love of Christ, both in sharing the gospel for people to believe and in serving others, then I don't care if they think Jesus is coming tomorrow, literally. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, if they want to talk about the details, I, I will talk about, because I don't, I don't say I don't hold a strong doctrine on this because I haven't studied it. Right. After studying it, I feel like it's not as conclusive as people want to say it is. I mean, I mean, people tell me all the time that like the WHO or like the UN is going to be the new world government that the Antichrist is going to come through, whatever. Maybe, but it also may be that literally a thousand years from now, with completely different global institutions, something will happen that will lead to the Antichrist in the end. Like, who knows? Yeah. I mean, people thought it was Rome. 
<clears throat> there's a, a large group of end times people who are called preterists, which believe that most of the stuff talked about in the Old Testament has literally already happened. Hmm. And so a, a lot of things that people are looking forward to and trying to sort out literally have already happened in the Babylonian, Roman, Greek empires. <laughs> and so all we're waiting for now is just the return of Jesus. Um, so, I mean, there's all kinds, I mean, there's just all kinds of views and they, a lot of them have a certain plausibility to them. So I, yeah. yeah. So I think that as long as it's leading to you to a increased devotion to Jesus, yeah, to be ready for him, to be found blameless in faith, pursuing godliness and living out love, right. then I would prefer Christians think Jesus is going to come back tomorrow. Right. Right. I, I think the apostle Paul, <clears throat> you know, when he says we who are still alive, he clearly did want to. He, he clearly wanted living Christians to believe that they might be raptured, that yeah. they might be the people for whom Christ came. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's because he he thought he knew it would be in 30 years. I think it's because he believed that every Christian throughout their lives should live that way every moment. Yeah. We should always believe that Jesus could come back in 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. You know, but at the same time, see, but other times people get so focused on the end times, they think the end times are coming, that they stop investing yeah. in human life. So, for example, this, this school I went to, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, was led by in the evangelical free church at the time believed that Jesus was going was to come back in our generation. Mm -hmm. Because of that, when they were creating a seminary, they had the opportunity to buy Mundelein Seminary, which was a beautiful stone building, many acred campus in the northern Chicago area. And they just decided it was worthless to buy such a seminary because sure. we're, we're not going to be around long enough for it to matter. Mm -hmm. The institution's not going to last a hundred years. Mm -hmm. So they ended up having to buy like a horse farm and whatever. And, and, and it's a great seminary and it has a fine piece of property, but yeah. Mundelein Seminary is gorgeous. Yeah. And and if they would have just thought differently. So um, Richard John Newhouse before he died said something like this. This isn't an exact quote, but it's a relative quote. He said, we should always believe that Jesus is about to come back. Mm -hmm. And we should simultaneously believe that in 200,000 years, people will speak about us as the earliest Christians. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that either of those could be. Yeah. So we should infest for the long run, like the church could be on earth this way for another 200,000 years or more. Right. And we should act like Jesus could come back in our personal morality and in our spirituality and in yeah. our love for others. Like he can come back in 20 minutes. Yeah. But in our investment, mm -hmm. like he's going to he come back in generations and generations. I mean, this leads to like questions like, should I get married and have children? Right. But if Jesus come back in 10 years, why would you do that? Mm -hmm. Right. That kind of thing. No, you should live like Jesus isn't going to come back in your life in your lifetime in terms of your investment, but you should live morally and spiritually like he's going to come back in a minute. Great. That's helpful. Thank you. I'm going to move us to the next one related to Christ coming back. What happens to cremated bodies when Christ comes back? My assumption is that they'll be reconstituted like all entirely decomposed and scattered bodies. Yeah. Like what's going to happen to people who fell overboard in the ocean? Mm-hmm. And got eaten into a million pieces by different fish and whatever. So um, now that that doesn't answer the question of whether or not Christians should be cremated. Right. In the early church, cremation was taught against very vociferously, partly because A, cremation was actually more expensive than burial in most cases. <laughs> so people weren't doing it to save money, right? Um, and it was connected with Greco-Roman culture that believed that when you died, that was it. You were going to Tartarus or the the afterlife, the underworld, and you weren't coming back and that was it. And like, why bury people? Yeah. Christians believe that you should be buried whole and that your feet should be pointed towards Jerusalem so that when Jesus returned on Mount Zion, you would be raised. You wouldn't only be raised, you'd be raised yeah. facing Jesus. Right. Yeah. 
yeah. you'd be like compass oriented to Jesus. I did not and, know that. Yeah, well, and the purpose was that was not just, was not like a, to be silly, but to say right. that's what's going to happen. Right. What's going to happen is we're going to be raised from the dead because Jesus is going to come back to Mount Zion and raise us from the dead. And so, it, so being buried whole and not cremated in contrast to the culture was a method of displaying faith yeah. in the resurrection. Yeah. And yeah, the, the church fathers in, in that time said that anybody who got cremated was essentially a pagan and not a believer. Hmm. And so that has led to Christians for a long time believing that Christians should not be cremated. There isn't a biblical command that says that. And there isn't biblical instruction, as far as I know, that gives instructions on burial other than the clean and unclean laws of the Old Testament, which don't give a command either. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know that the universal practice of the Old Testament was the use of crypts, Mm. which is that you had a place where you would take a dead body and you would lay it for about a year, year and a half and let it entirely decompose. And then you would collect the bones together and you'd put them together with the bones of the rest of your family. And so it was very space efficient. Right. Right. And so you weren't burying people in individual graves. You had a crypt that held all the bones from generations that eventually turned to dust. Mm. Right. And you would put each person who died on this like crypt thing where they would decompose. Right. So nobody does that anymore. That would probably still be the best thing to do in my opinion. But it's not what we do. So like even people who died in the Old Testament or or were through the system, they're not being buried whole. God is still reconstituting them from a big mess of bones. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. So uh, so in that sense, I don't I mean, I don't see how fundamentally reincarnation is that different. It's not commanded against in the Bible. I think it is a reasonable option for Christians, especially if they believe that it is a good witness to the culture. Um I wish that people could be buried much more cheaply than mm-hmm. they are. Mm-hmm. A lot of people do it to frankly save money because burial has become so radically expensive. Sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I, so I don't instruct people not to do it, not to get cremated. And I also don't encourage them to get cremated mm-hmm. is my policy. Sure. Um, just a really quick clarifier, just in the event that someone is going to be nitpicky. I think at one point you accidentally referred to cremation as reincarnation and you didn't. Oh, sorry. No, I meant just cremation. Yeah. I don't believe people are reincarnated yet. Right. <laughs> But just to really, you know, cross our T's. Okay. Last. Yeah. I mean, technically the resurrection is reincarnation in that reincarnation literally means to be made flesh again. Yeah. But. In the sense. That's confusing. Yeah. Okay. Last question. You're going to have to do some defining with this one. What is your opinion of annihilationism and universalism? Are they acceptable positions for a Bible believing Christian to hold? Yeah, it depends on what acceptable means. Is that the no? Okay, so let, start, let me define the two. With an, yeah, exactly. Universalism is the view that salvation is universal. That is, that in the end, whatever salvation is, everyone will experience it. There are no who are, none who are damned or lost. For some, that's just in reference to human beings. For some, that's in reference to human beings and angels and demons. Annihilationism is the idea that those who are not saved or who who do not belong to Christ will not be raised again to everlasting torment in judgment, but will just be raised, judged, and then thrown in the lake of fire to be ultimately destroyed and will no longer exist. Some annihilationists believe that that will happen at the point of judgment and it will happen immediately. Others believe that there will be a time period of appropriate judgment. So there will be eternal conscious torment, but it won't be everlasting. It will be whatever the appropriate time period is. So 
you know, hopefully somebody like me, it would be less time than Hitler or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. So it would be relative to their sins, appropriate in an appropriate length of time and intensity, and then they would be annihilated or no longer exist. That is that eternal life is a gift God gives the righteous or the saved, not that he gives every human being. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So those are the two views. Now, in the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy in the 1970s, I am told, I have not read this for myself, but I am told that annihilationism is called a acceptable minority evangelical position that is not encouraged. Okay. <laughs> the reason why that's the case is that you can make you can make a decent biblical argument for annihilationism. The the words commonly used for death and damnation in the teachings of Jesus and elsewhere is are generic words that often like mean something like destruction. Mm-hmm. So annihilationists just say, well, destroyed just means destroyed, no longer existing, right? Um, and so, so for example, if you say, okay, somebody is thrown into a place where the fire does not go out and the worm does not die, what does that mean? Does that mean that if you're thrown into that place, because the fire does not go out, that means you don't stop being burned forever. And because the worm does not die, your flesh gets eaten forever. And that's meant to be a metaphor that makes you believe in eternal conscious torment. Or does it just mean you're being thrown in a place that will consume you? Like the worm never dies. So it'll eat you all up and there's nothing left. It'll burn you all up. and There's nothing left. And then the fire goes on and on and on and on and on. So that whatever number of people are thrown in there, whatever, whatever condemnation God exerts, it will eat up and ultimately destroy everything. So what you end up realizing is it's like, there are some assumptions. We are reading assumptions into different places and arguments. So, so the argument for, for annihilationism is in my view, much stronger than the biblical argument for universalism. I think, I think the idea that you can argue universalism for the Bible is incredibly naive or interested. I mean, like you just really want the Bible to say that. Yeah. The Bible speaks so much about condemnation and it does so in the, on the lips of Jesus himself, both testaments, multiple authors, many metaphors. Like it's just really hard to get away from it. The only way to really get to a universalist view is to say that the principle of salvation is so fundamental that all of the particulars said in the Bible must ultimately give way before the universal. Right? So it would be like saying, um, America believes in equality, but we also believe in personal property and free choice of uh, blah, blah, all these other things, right? But in the end, because we believe in equality, we have to get rid of all the other things. Like as we work out the principle of equality, ultimately you can't own stuff because then we're not all equal and you can't choose your own profession because there's always going to be inequality bound up in that. And you can't do all these things you thought you could do because ultimately equality rubs them all out. It's the same logic used for egalitarianism, the belief, belief that there's no gender roles between men and women. Because the Bible says that in Christ, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, Scythian, barbarian, but all are one in Christ. That principle of there is no longer any distinction because Christ makes us one, then there's no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. There's no distinction between the man and the woman. It all goes away mm-hmm. fundamentally, not just in terms of salvation, that we can all accept Jesus and be his, but that what used to distinguish men from women must go away. Now, nobody actually takes that to its logical conclusion. If you took it to its logical conclusion, we would all have to not believe in gender anymore. We'd all have to be gender non-binary, and none of us could believe that we were men or women because it literally is gone in Christ. But nobody takes it that far. 
everybody knows it's a metaphor, right? It means that the distinctions are gone. Well, how many and which ones? And if we still are men and women, then some stay. Well, which ones stay and which ones go? Well, people like me say, well, you decide according to the teaching of the rest of the Bible. Right. So anyway, so so annihilationism, the view that we are annihilated if we are not saved, we cease to exist after a period of judgment um, is believed by some. Actually, if you read the high point doctrinal statement really closely, it was written not to to infer eternal conscious torment, but not exclude annihilationism. You can read it and be annihilationist and be like, I believe that. Sure. Mm-hmm. So and when I talked to Archie McKinney, who has since passed about it. He said that that was mildly intentional. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if you read our doctrinal statement, it absolutely excludes universalism. Okay. And I, I hold the same thing. I don't like annihilationism because I think it's wrong. And I think that it is, I think that it creates problems for Christian theology in, in relationship to how we think about the glory of God. But I don't think that there, I don't know of any formal problem with it, that if you believe it, you must disbelieve something fundamental mm-hmm. and i don't believe those people aren't saved or are bad christians yeah. but i think if you come to the view of annihilationism because you just can't emotionally handle the concept of eternal conscious torment i think you're going to miss out on something in the character of god and it may be something really important and really um that really holds you in on on submitting to god's absolute authority in all things mm-hmm. that could be unhelpful so i distrust that doctrine yeah also it was, it's believed by almost no one in the history of the church too so it's a it's in incredibly minority opinion. Okay. And you have to argue that the entire ancient church was possessed by Greek mythology in their theology. And that's why they believe in hell and that sort of stuff and the mind body division, all, all those sorts of things. And I think that those kinds of arguments about the ancient church are way overblown hmm. because the, the early church fathers, if you actually read them critique those kinds of views everywhere and say they're wrong sure. and then still hold the doctrines that they hold. So I, I have never found that to be a good reading of church history. So for, there's lots of reasons, yeah. but I think that universalism is just, if, if you want to be a biblical Christian in any meaningful sense, I just don't think that works, except for the way I said, and I don't think that's a good way to think at all. Yeah. And annihilationism, I think, has major flaws and problems. Um, but it, you can make a systematic biblical argument for it. Um, the person in town here who spent the most time doing so is Tom Flaherty from City Church. Um, and, and they have a CD at their church. that's like a, his him on that for two hours, oh, wow. but I think he's mistaken. I just, I think, I just think it's wrong. I think that, I think that the historic view of the church is the correct reading of Christ and the apostles and that, um, offending the, the everlastingly and infinitely great God can easily account for everlasting conscious torment, mm-hmm. which can be varied in its intensity and is according to scripture. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, have you um have you read the book Erasing Hell by Francis Chan or do you know anything about it? No, I read some reviews on the guy who did the hell erasing, um, who was a pastor that Marshall was it Marshall Bible Church in Grand Rapids. What's his yeah, name? Rob Bell. Rob Bell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, I read some of the reviews on Rob Bell's book, and um, it's a very important debate. I just am so not interested in it because it's so clearly an argument of worldliness. Hmm. Like Bell doesn't believe in scripture. So then, well, believe whatever you want then. I mean, like if you don't believe in the Christian documents, the divine Christian theology, and you're making it up yourself, then you can make up whatever you want. Sure. And so it doesn't surprise me that Bell went that way in the end. Yeah. 
Um, he is very interesting. Like I, yeah. I've listened to a bunch of his lectures. He's very, he knows a lot of psychology and his psychological integration stuff is just really kind of interesting and cool. Yeah. Um, I grew up in a just, study that yeah. watched a lot of his NUMA videos. And yeah. so as a teen learning about like specifically learning about sexuality and the different sorts of love. I remember vividly watching his video on fire and like the beauty, but danger of fire. I mean, yeah. And really yeah. grew from them, but that was, yeah. Ago. You know, in like 2005. Okay. So I was, I was early on the, I am not getting on Rob Bell's train yeah. because my church was doing the new videos with youth. Yeah. And I watched the one on judgment. Or I watched the one on like baggage, the one where they're like people are going through the airport and whatever. And um, at the end, it's kind of like the climax of the video. Um, he quotes from Romans twelve and says, "Don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God." And then it just kind of like goes to the end of the video, and it's like you leave room for God, you don't take revenge. Like that's what you do with your baggage; you have to forgive, which is true, but. If you know the verse he's quoting, what the verse actually says is, yeah. don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's possessive wrath. Yeah, That's what it says. So it's God's apostrophe S, wrath. So what it means is you're not supposed to take revenge because God is the one who will take revenge. Right. And if revenge is right to take, he will do it and he'll do it perfectly. And when he was willing to stop that verse at the apostrophe yeah, and not say what the verse said, and liter- it wasn't kind of like... I was mad at him because he didn't give appropriate context or like he didn't read the two verses before the two verses after he literally cut off inside of a word right? to say what he wanted to say. And when he did that, I was like, Oh, there's probably a problem here. Yeah. If you'll do that, there's a bunch of things that you will do Uh and I am not getting, I don't trust you anymore. Yeah. And, and I was like, okay, listen, I actually told the youth minister, I was like, listen, did you see what he just did there? And part of my frustration is nobody has any idea that these things, like nobody, they don't know their Bible enough to be like, you just stopped in the middle of a word, dude. You, you're not allowed to do that. Yeah. You can stop at the end of a verse or something. And so I, I like, I took youth pastor through it and he was like, Oh, that's yeah. He probably shouldn't do that. I was like, yeah. So after you show the video, you tell our youth that he was like, Oh yeah. Okay. I guess I will. But like, he had no idea. Yeah. Nobody has any idea. And people just watch those. And they're like, Oh, Rob Bell's so great. Yeah. And then Rob Bell just, went off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and he's so compelling. Like yes, he his is. stuff is really compelling. Mm-hmm. And so I understand people being super interested in that, but like all the cool stuff that he says is compatible with orthodox Christian doctrinal belief. It all it's all compatible with it. Right. And so you don't have to throw away creedal Jesus centered the the Christianity Jesus actually taught in order to believe in the things that can be scientifically derived and added to our knowledge by means of studying modern things. Yeah. Which is what Rob ultimately steeped himself in. So uh, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, then when Chan came out with the racing hell, I was like, yeah, I know I agree with that. I don't have to read it. Sure. was kind of my attitude. Okay. All right. Well, thank you everyone who asked these questions. Thanks Nick for going through them. And we, uh, yeah, we're grateful that, we get a chance to have these sorts of times that I've really enjoyed this during the cope during the coronavirus that we have this. So who knows how much longer we'll have it, but we have it for now. So we'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for 
listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.